if that is a product that's important for your shopper, it's not just about losing that sale in that particular category. You can lose an entire basket. You can lose an entire trip. You can lose the entire consumer full stop. Well, hello there. This is Melena, and welcome to another episode of Scientific Mavericks Podcast. This episode is a part of Academia Focus series, and for these episodes, I will be joined by my colleague and co-host, Alvaro. In this series, we're going to bring to you the most interesting and relevant research areas and the academics behind them. At Hybrid, we are passionate about bringing new thinking, ideas, and technology to life. We believe this can help change attitudes, lives, and ultimately the world. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Hybrid. Hybrid is the pioneer of hyperlocal retailing, combining artificial intelligence, operations research, and human-centered design models to help CPGs and retailers generate a return on physical space investment. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Kathleen Hillens, Professor of Marketing at the University of North Carolina, Kenan Flagler Business School. Dr. Hillens' main area of research is all things that touch upon retailing, specifically the interactions between brand manufacturers, retailers, and consumers, and how those dynamics shape the retail industry. So without further ado, we'll kick this episode off with Dr. Hillens explaining how a major global disruptive force has completely transformed the world, our society, and the retail industry. Digitalization is most definitely something that has altered the entire playing field wherever you go and whatever you look at, whether you look at it from the point of view of brands as well as from the point of retailers, it has completely reshaped everything. It's hard for me to really say that is the time, but let's say that around the 2010s, everything started to accelerate. Why is it so hard to say that it's one point in time? Because at the end of the day, and that is where I go back to the consumers, it's not just about introducing a specific type of technology. It's not about introducing a specific type of innovation. It's about how it changes people's behavior. And that is actually the biggest shock. It's not just the one type of retailer, the Amazons of the world, or it's one specific type of technology. It's about how we as human beings completely shifted the ways where we think about what we think is normal, what we think is that we actually are entitled to. If you just look at the share of online retailing in total, in the US, it's around a 16% ballpark. When you say that people are sometimes sort of like, oh, I thought it was much higher. Uh, so why is everybody talking about the big disruption? What is going on? Well, it's not just about the share that the digital players are having. It's just the massive effect it had on us as consumers, as what we think is normal. So what the way you have to think about is that what was the big promise that most digital retailers started to sell to consumers? It's simply that you could get anything that you could dream of without putting a lot of effort. You could find it. Just one click and that is what we will give you. So that completely reshaped the idea of what we think is convenient. On top of that, we don't have to put in any physical effort in the sense we don't have to leave the couch, to order it, have it delivered, etc. On top of that, because there is so much dynamic pricing going on with all the algorithms that are churning in the back, we also expect to get a really good price. On top of that, 
we also stopped saying, hey, it, it actually makes sense to pay for service because, hey, I can get everything right here, right now. And nope, I'm not going to pay for the extra service or a delivery. No, nope, sorry, sorry. That is your responsibility. I'm not going to pay for it. So at the end of the day, what you have is the type of consumer that started to emerge is the type of person that wants everything right here, right now, at the lowest possible price, and actually without any willingness to pay for anything. And that is, of course, extremely, extremely hard. If you start to think about that, that is actually what's completely reshaping everything. At the end of the day, it's not just the brick, the traditional brick and mortars who actually struggle to deal with that. Also, the Amazons of the world have a big problem satisfying that type of consumer. Because on top of that, hey, it's not as if we're still giving them everything they want right here, right now, because you cannot get it right here, right now in a pure digital format. And that is where they also had to think like, uh, perhaps we do have a somewhat of a competitive disadvantage, because if you're clever as a brick and mortar, and yes, there are clever brick and mortars out there, what they figured out is that, you know what, guys, you're not giving the consumers everything because they actually do appreciate the convenience, once again, of not only checking out the assortment, but also getting it immediately. Because if you think about it, a store, what is that? It's actually a perfect little fulfillment center. So yes, you have the convenience of looking at the entire assortment from your couch. You can put in the order. Hey, but you know what? We can actually give it to you. Hey, if you don't want to sort of leave the door, we can still bring it to you and we'll fulfill it from our nearest store, which can be very nearby, or you can come and pick it up in our store. So once again, you can actually see that those brick and mortars are also seeing, you know, by integrating all things digital, we can actually even come up with a better value proposition. We're then led to all these digital players thinking like, okay, so if we don't want to be our competed, we have to go physical. That is another element that you have to bring into the equation is that, the entire cost structure of just simply delivering and fulfilling everything that you order online is extremely expensive. So once again, the Amazons of the world then started to say, okay, let's go physical, let's put in stores. So what you have is you have these traditional brick and mortars becoming more and more digital by integrating everything, all things digital, and you have these classic digital pure play retailers who are also now becoming much more physical and actually there is no such thing anymore as a brick and mortar or a digital store. It is a very, very complex thing to sort of integrate everything in a very neat and especially cost-efficient way. On top of that, there are also a lot of challenges in making people buy as much in an online environment. So once again, you actually have an increase in your entire cost structure. And quite often, the outcome, the demand side is quite uncertain. And that is also why you see that so many retailers are not doing really well. Margins are always relatively thin. But that is why you see that a lot of them are actually struggling. So what I'm hearing is ultimately retailers who are adapting and adopting will thrive while others will die. What factors then prevent retailers from adapting to the changing market environment what issues are they facing? It is not a choice. You have to adapt or you will die. That is a certainty. So what is the issue here that you have at hand is that at this point in time, a lot of it is trial and error. What is usually a given? What is it that they know? They know the cost structure. You typically don't know what works and what doesn't work. And 
obviously, when something doesn't work that has direct implications, that means that your demand goes down, that you lose your share, and that sometimes, especially when you already have a very high cost structure, it may become lethal. (laughs) The way you have to rethink your entire store concept, it is just sometimes daunting because it really contradicts everything that has been done in the past centuries, if you want to. The typical thinking that you had in retailing was, is you have to put as much as product on the store floor because otherwise it's not efficient. That is absolutely the other, what you don't want to do anymore. The things that you want to present have to be fresh. They have to be new. They have to be things that entice people that you still want to come and see what it is because, hey, the things that you buy all the time, you really, you actually don't need to see them. Yes, it's nice if you can pick them up right away, but then once again, they don't necessarily need to be on display in full force. Once again, it becomes a completely different type of environment that is not really geared towards presenting everything that you potentially can sell, but really sort of make it like an experience center, completely rethinking what is it that you put in a store. And once again, and what the what is not just a product, it's a total concept of services, of experiences, of convenience in the broader sense of the word, and making sure that they still come to you. That is what it's all about. Once consumers enter the store, you can start to talk to them and you can start to influence them. And what does influencing mean in retail terms is that you can do some upselling, that you can do cross-selling, you can influence them. All these different things you can never, ever do online. Yes, we can try But that is the one thing that we do know. You cannot replicate it online the way you can do it in a real physical world. So instead of writing a sentence to the retailers who are struggling, let's offer them survival strategies. Dr. Hillens, could you identify some strategies that retailers can start implementing already today? So when we talk about survival strategies, obviously we're talking about different time horizons. And once again, why is that important here? Because COVID has had such an important impact. So you have to make sure at this point in time that you actually manage it through the next couple of months or year. So that's one. Obviously, the long term, that is part of what I was already talking about. It's seamlessly integrating everything that is online fulfillment in the store, as well as completely transforming the store. Here, it also depends on what type of retail we're looking at. There's obviously a big difference between grocery and everything that is non-grocery. Past couple of months have been very transformative and probably also for the type of consumers that they want to attract. As a positive side effect, if you can sort of, I don't want to sound sarcastic or cynical in any way, is that this entire pandemic has taught people putting orders online go and pick it up in the store and combine those two worlds, that omni-channel type of ideas, almost seamlessly, almost in a way that, okay, I see that this works. I'll probably keep on doing this for the rest of the time. Obviously, what does that mean? They will have to be able to sustain that in months and years to come. That means that they will have to adapt their stores to accommodate that behavior more quickly. Meaning when I was talking about those mini fulfillment centers, that is something that you will have to put in there right away. Another thing that we've noticed, especially for when it comes to the more grocery type of a segment, is that when I was talking about adding services that do not necessarily touch upon your traditional assortment, what they were already doing was shopping around to integrate everything that touches upon health. 
with everything that has been happening, that is something that they will keep prioritizing. The part that is actually not doing well, wasn't doing well, and is now even doing worse, is everything that is consumer durables or semi-durables, apparel, department stores, consumer electronics, you name it. What you have there is that those stores, they had to close. A lot of them are still closed. Either what was happening is that people were completely postponing their typical shopping uh, needs or whatever they did, they wanted to buy from those stores, or they would just say it's putting it in online. And then what you do is, because also for those stores, there was most of the time no curbside pickup opportunity. It had to be sent to them. So what you have is you now you've been driving a lot of your consumers purely online with home delivery as default type of thinking, getting those people back to your stores will be even harder, especially because for those type of stores, people may also be afraid to enter the store. So for them, it will be extremely important to figure out what is it that brings people back to the store. The quickest fix that you will see happening, well, or probably already see happening, is that there will, of course, in the first stage, be an extreme emphasis on all things price and price promotions. Once again, think about apparel, consumer electronics, impulse is so important. Being able to cross-sell is so important. So you need to get them to the store. So that is something that you will see right away. The downside of that, what you have to know is the moment you give promotions, you are lowering your price point and actually you lowering your price margins. That doesn't do a lot with your profits. So that means once again that you need to keep working on how can I sort of like keep those people coming back to the store and just not alienating them or keep them going online. The problem there is that a lot of these more experiential type of elements at this point in time, not something that people are really willing to explore. So it's all going to be like, how can I sort of take baby steps? How can I sort of do things that are unique to what I can offer in a store environment and where people still feel safe? The exact nature of what that is will be very, very depending on the type of product that you're selling, the type of store that you have. But it will be something that you will have to do. It can be by thinking about exclusive type of offers. And when I say offers, I'm not talking about price promotion. It can be about product itself, things that uniquely sell in store environment. It can be about all kinds of services that you give. Everything that is still has some sort of a physical component that allows people to come back to it, to you, because ultimately that is what you have to do. For most retailers, once again, it doesn't matter whether how you started out, at the end of the day, you will need people to come back to your store because otherwise you won't be able to sell enough. So far, we have primarily focused on the retailers, but I would love to explore the consumer side of things, given the transformed marketplace. What societal impact do we observe on ourselves? Are there only positives or is there something that we should be wary of? Let me start with the daunting elements. Yeah, 
What is it that you have is that we're going to a world in which everything is hyper-targeted, hyper-individualized when it comes to pricing, when it comes to assortment and how you offer it. On the one hand, that sounds like perfect because now you actually get something that is tailor-made, so to speak, for you. But the question is, how does that work when you translate that to price? Because if we go to individual pricing, this is typically the part that people find quite scary and where they even start to ask the question, is that legal? Well, yes, it is typically legal. If you only do it purely based on purchasing behavior or even browsing behavior, yes, then it's legal. Obviously, it's not legal when you start to factor in observables like gender, race, religion, you name it. So a zip code type of targeting is already borderline illegal. But they actually don't really always understand why it's good. Because what is individual pricing? It means that all of us at the exact same moment in time, exact same place for the exact same product can be offered a different price. When you ask people, do you think that's fair? Over 75% will say absolutely not. Well, when do you think it's nice? When you get the lowest price. But obviously, that's not how it works. Because what is individual pricing? It sort of assumes that there is an average price and around that average price is distribution. So there will be higher prices, there will be lower prices. How are we going to set those prices? Mainly that is will be done based on our past behavior, but also our present behavior in the sense that if you go online, you can observe everything we do, how we browse, how we go from one product to the next, from one price to the next. And the algorithms can integrate also all the offline information because they know where you are. We actually have perfect geographic information so we can factor in prices from competitors a couple of miles away from you. And if you start to combine all that, you can get a price that is completely different from actually the person that is sitting next to you and putting in the same type of order. Also, from an antitrust authority's point of view, if there is individual pricing, then what is the price? Is the price still observable? And can we monitor what is going on in the retail market? Typically, what you want from an antitrust perspective, you want to make sure that prices stay as low as possible. But if there is no price anymore, if the price is no longer really observed because it is unique to everyone, how can we make sure that price competition really drives down prices? The other thing is, once again, with retailers sort of being so much in charge of what we put on the shelves, does that mean that the selection, the assortment is also becoming, how shall I say that, despite the fact that there are seemingly endless aisles, the things that we really get at the end of the day is doesn't the selection become more narrow and narrow and narrow? And if that is true, for instance, if for also for brands, it becomes so much harder to get their mark on a retail shelf, whether that's a digital shelf or a physical shelf, they may be less inclined to invest in innovations, in new products. Once again, is that something that is good for consumers? So that's another issue that you may have. Another let's call it dark side, is everything that touches upon privacy. Everything is monitored. If everything becomes integrated online, offline, we know perfectly what you do, where you do it, what point in time you actually have the app for the store. Hey, we can actually track you. Uh, we can actually see your every move. We know everything. You have a ton and ton of information. If you think about the voice applications that you get, the Alexas of the world, they literally listen in. They know everything. So it becomes a completely different type of ballpark when we talk about privacy. The other thing that you see is everything that is biometric. 
obviously, lots and lots of technology that trying out is based on face recognition, is based on all kinds of other biometrics. There's also still a lot of resistance against that. Like, how is that used? Is that used against you? At this point in time, people may be more inclined to say, okay, yeah, you go ahead because of all the contamination threats that are going on. But then at the end of the day, is that something that they're going to regret? Those are the typical darker sides that people talk about when they think about everything that's been going on in the retail sphere. The positive sides, as I said, is because there is such tremendous competition between online, offline, everything seemingly integrated, we do get a lot more convenience. So in a certain way, and at the same time, and that is where you see always the paradoxes coming in, if I have all these endless aisles and everything is being available, once again, does that lead to some sort of like a choice overload? To what extent does that really make your life easier? So yeah, it's a mixed bag of things that is obviously still evolving. Given your expertise on the topic, can you share your thoughts on the importance of assortment selection? For example, expand a little bit on the trade-off between narrow and wide assortments, and how do you advise to proceed with assortment changes? Oh, of course, yeah, no, no. Assortment is, is extremely important. So what you have with assortment from a consumer point of view, it typically serves two different roles. The idea of having a wide assortment is what brings people to the store. Because people don't want to put in the cognitive effort. For most things that you want to buy, obviously not for extremely high ticket type of items, you don't want to think too much in advance. You just want to have a guarantee that the store is a curator and that they will have whatever you need when you enter that store. So you like the idea of having a wide assortment. The problem is the moment you enter the store, that wide assortment is actually going to lead to the classic choice overload. That is where it becomes really hard for you to make a decision. Sometimes it is something that you buy all the time and that's fine. But quite often it's that people staring at a shelf and thinking like, I really have no clue. And they even stop making a purchase. It's actually the difference between the traffic building aspect and the conversion. And it's trying to bring those two together, finding the right balance that you have to do. And that is where you see that all the assortment reduction type of exercises come into play. The question then is, how do we do that? Because if you do that with a typical OR exercise, which obviously is a very good tool to begin, you're going to very much look at the perhaps also some cross effects, some other, other SKUs, some other uh, categories. You're going to factor in the margins, those type of things. But the question is that, once again, from the point of view of the, of the consumer, not every SKU serves the same role. So what you have is sometimes, and that is what you typically see, is when you go to these rationalization type of exercises, some seemingly unimportant SKUs are being kicked out of the assortment, and all of a sudden, the effects are much more drastic than what you expected. And why is that? Because it can be that they really attract a certain important niche that cannot be served by any other type of whatever skew that you keep on the shelf. If that is a product that is important for your shopper, it's not just about losing that sale in that particular category. You can lose an entire basket. You can lose an entire trip. You can lose the entire consumer full stop. So it's really about knowing what is the relationship? How important is it to the category? Is it something that you can shift very easily to another 
product that we still keep on the shelf? Or is it something that we cannot really replace that we will see will bring down the entire category and even the store? The other thing is, is that the typical trick that there's always talk about is that variety is something that we like as a very broad idea. The one thing that you have to manipulate is perceived variety. You have to trick people into believing that nothing happened. And that is also another thing that you have to think about. Like, okay, what are some of the most salient elements here for this particular category? So what is more important here if you're going to make an abstraction of the fact that you have perhaps one or two three, very, very the best-selling items? There are other things that you have to keep in, into consideration. You have to make sure that you keep the same mix of attributes, the same levels of the attributes. Also, classic mistakes that you see is that all of a sudden they're going to prioritize private labels or just the number one brand. And once again, that will sort of completely disrupt everything that is just that more abstract type of idea of the perceived variety. It's also typically important to keep the space that you allocate to the category the same. Once again, it's all about tricking consumers into thinking that actually nothing has changed. If you do it correctly, you can actually reduce your category successfully within 30%. But the classic mistake is that people underestimate the cognitive processes that go on on the side of the consumer. What you typically have to do is start with the, the pure data type of exercise, but then try to figure out, okay, how do people really react to it before you start rolling it out? Maybe following on that one, how do you make the call then on what to offer and what not? And do you have any pointers to make these decisions? Or shall I say it is a tricky word, but the magic word that everybody uh, uses or abuses if you want to is curation. Retailers are becoming increasingly aware that clutter doesn't help anyone, whether that's a digital clutter or a physical clutter. So what is important is that you just need to be perceived as different. So what you want to do is actually do what retailers used to do in the first place is you will be the one that they trust to make the right selection for you. It's a combination of giving you the service and the product. And that is how you actually try to create a solution through clutter, making sure that you are clever in how you stand out, knowing what you stand for, being positioned. And this is where the word big box comes into play that caters everything to everyone. That is probably not going to work. You have to make a stance. You have to know, hey, this is what we stand for. This is what we specialize in. Please do it at our store because otherwise it won't work. It's very much micro-marketing if you want to, knowing what actually exists in a certain market, but also knowing what your consumer wants in that specific market. It's obviously a combination of a lot of data-driven type of exercise, but also following trends very much. It's a clever combination of soft skills and the typical hard skills. This is great. The more I hear you talk, the broader set of questions it gets. But one topic that I would like to flush out and is suitable for this conversation, especially in these times where we try to minimize physical contact, is understanding the benefits and drawbacks of click and collect. Can you expand a little bit on the importance of this concept for retailers? Let me sort of give you a couple of ideas here about why that entire concept of click and collect is so important. On the one hand, you have the fulfillment of supply chains element. That is just, it reduces the costs. If you don't have to ship 
whatever it is that you buy, whether it's a grocery product or a pair of shoes, it doesn't really matter, or a washing machine, if you don't have to ship it to individual doorsteps, that saves you a lot of money. That is the classic last mile problem. Yeah, It's relatively cheap to ship something that is at a central point that is about five miles removed from you is bridging those last couple of miles. So from that point of view, thinking about the store as your mini fulfillment distribution center, where, yeah, you can put in your order wherever you want to, but you can come and pick it up, that actually really helps you. So that is just from the supply side of point of view. By the way, that is also the reason why lots of, well, actually most digital players do need a physical presence. Because once again, the Amazons of the world, they cannot sustain the model that they have at this point in time. Because once again, whatever they're charging for delivery, it doesn't cover it. They really need to bring people to a place where they're willing to pick up whatever they buy. And that's why you see that they're so interested in grocery stores. Because that is something that has a high traffic where people will naturally go to, which still fits in with the life. There are not too many added efforts involved for, for a lot of consumers. Then, of course, the other part is obviously demand. That is consumer behavior. So once again, I can't stress it enough. The problem with all things online, when we look at consumer behavior, purchase behavior online, impulse is an issue. And when I talk about impulse, once again, I'm not talking just about chocolates. I'm really talking also about apparel. I'm talking about consumer electronics. It is so hard to influence people online. If you cannot bring them into the store to order something, at least if you can actually bring them into the store to pick it up, once again, they are in the store and you can start to influence them. Bringing people into the store because they have to pick up something or return for all I care actually gives you an opportunity for people to buy more. And that is what you see. You actually want to put your click and collect counter somewhere central in the store where people actually navigate the store and then they get tempted and you can actually start to influence them. And that is how you do it. And actually what you see is that if you allow for those type of elements, what you will lose on the ordering side, on the impulse, you can compensate it and sometimes even more than compensate it by bringing in that click and collect into the store. So firstly, Dr. Helens, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and insights with our audience today. For those who would want to explore further on the topics that we have discussed today, what resources can you recommend? It depends on what you want to do, whether you look at this from a practitioner's point of view or whether you want to start working with a lot of these things from a research point of view. Obviously, there are a couple of overview books that actually give you a bit of an idea of what the important elements are. And once again, not to overplug a book that I edited together with my colleague, Else Gersbrecht, we actually did a recent edited chapters overview of everything that's been going on in retailing. And it sums everything up going from the more strategic type of decisions like entries and exits, but also looking at everything that touches on pricing, price promotions, assortment, you name it. So it gives a, a nice intro if everything is really brand new to you on what is going on. There are, of course, other interesting elements that you can actually look at, especially when it comes to the more online, offline integration. And there, once again, it becomes somewhat um, harder because everything is still going on. There's an interesting book by Barbara Khan uh, that looks into that, that may actually give you somewhat of an idea of what the issues are and how to address them strategically. When it comes to, for instance, everything that touches upon category management, then there's a ton of information out there. There's a 
ton of literature out there. So what you have to try and find is good overview type of chapters, which I can provide, but I can't uh, really Top of my head, I, I cannot give you the exact references, but they do exist. So what you have to look for is everything that gives you an overview of what's being done without the, going into it into depth right away, because otherwise I think you may get lost somewhat. To finish our conversation today, I would like to ask you, what question do you wish people would ask you more often? Oh, huh. I have to say, over the last months, even years, I've been talking so much about everything that is online-offline integration. So that is one thing that I'm used to talking about. Perhaps I think what people underestimate, I think is just in general, what is the long-term value of a store? What does it really bring to you? Because I think most people too easily assume that online will be the default model. And I don't necessarily think that that is going to happen. Because that is a question that I also recently got. You may know that in China, the online share of retail is at 65 plus percent. So whether that was actually something that we could expect to see anywhere else. And I'm not entirely sure that that is really going to be the case in, let's call this traditional developed type of markets. Because what you have in typically emerging markets like China and India is that there was no modern retail infrastructure. So what you had is they just jumped in with online without having to invest in the brick and mortar. So, yes, when you just look at the share of modern retail, as they will call it, it is high. They're sort of like making abstraction of a wide set of mom and pop stores that are not necessarily going to go away. And also the fact that people grow up differently, that we still have our default way of thinking is still to a certain extent, I go to the store. So I don't think that, for instance, the China model is something that is going to happen here soon or perhaps even ever. Thank you for listening until the end of this podcast episode. Before you leave, I would like to let you know that you can find the link to the book chapter Dr. Helen's co-authored in the description of this podcast. Lastly, if you want to learn about seven timeless retail principles, check out the podcast episode featuring Flora Delaney. As always, stay tuned for thoughts of leading business and academic experts in the retail space by subscribing to our channel. And till the next time, everyone.